Ballad of the Sea Bison is opening up episode 228 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. The podcast is Monster Kid Radio and the band is Dinosaur Ghost. This song appears on their self-titled album, Dinosaur Ghost, which you can find at dinosaurghost.bandcamp.com or look them up on Facebook. Either way, I hope you're enjoying the music. You're going to get to hear it in its entirety at the end of this episode. Welcome to our coverage of the movie The Mummy's Tomb with Nicholas Hatcher, the man behind the podcasts. That's right, podcasts, more than one. Vampire Over Hollywood, the Bailey Lugosi podcast, and Psychotronic Celluloid. Check out our website for links to both of these podcasts in the show notes. But wait till you're done listening to this episode first, because there's a lot to talk about. We're talking about The Mummy's Tomb, the second of the Karis films, the third mummy film from Universal. Now, we had Nicholas Hatcher on the show back on episodes 197 and 198 to talk about the movie The Mummy's Hand. In episode 227, just two days ago, we talked about the behind the scenes and the people involved in the movie The Mummy's Tomb. And in this episode, we're going to break down the story. So yes, there will be spoilers. If you haven't seen the movie and you care about having some of the plot points ruined for you, well, go check out the movie. It runs just over an hour, then come right back here to Monster Kid Radio. I'll wait for you. Go, Go ahead. Go ahead. You good? Okay, let's go ahead and dive into our conversation about The Mummy's Tomb with Nicholas Hatcher right after this. Out of the dark, forbidden forest of ghostly still oak remains, there was created an evil structure that would become a curse to all who crossed its boundaries. This would be known as the frightening... The evil house of the Black Death. See Lon Chaney as the black magician who carried out the command of Satan. John Carradine as the leader of a cult dedicated to the task of unleashing demons upon the world. before has a motion picture captured the fright, the stark, terrifying horror, the chills, the uncanny thrills that are to be found within the walls of this castle of evil. Over seven decades ago, audiences were exposed to a new kind of cinema unleashed upon the silver screen, led by one of the most talented and interesting actors that the world of the living and the dead have ever seen. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. These films of fright had legions of heroes and fans who loved and continued to love them. But for many, one man stood above the rest. For one who has not lived even a single lifetime, you are a wise man. Ben Helsing. Now, after conquering stage, screen, radio, and television, he rises from his cinematic coffin to gain new blood on Vampire Over Hollywood, the podcast devoted to the king of classic movies of the macabre, Bela Lugosi. Hear strange insights, little-known facts, and details about all of Lugosi's films. She's dead only in the sense that you understand that word. I'm on the threshold of bringing her back to complete life. And you will be able to help. If you love Bela Lugosi, then succumb to the will of the vampire over Hollywood. For more information, visit vampireoverhollywood.com. Vampire Over Hollywood. Your podcast devoted to the king of horror, Bela Lugosi. Pull the string. Nightmare terror from the tomb. An ancient curse comes to life to strangle the living and raise the dead. 
Fear is the horror and the terror of a story that began in ancient Egypt. Take that, Obey! When Kartubey, a son of Pharaoh, died in the desert and was covered in the shroud that bore the sacred power of life and death. What was he saying? He says that death awaits all who disturb the resting place of Kato Bay. Warning to every creature of flesh and blood, beware the beat of the cloth-wrapped feet. Beware the curse of the mummy's shroud. This is the leader of the British expedition who came in search of the tomb. The rich and ruthless financier who believes money can bribe even the devil himself. This is the son who knows there is no escape. Someone or, or something is trying to destroy us. I believe it'll find us wherever we go. The wife and mother trapped by the mummy's shroud. Ah, oh, I, I see death. This is Haiti, the crystal gazer, who sees into the past and the terrifying future. This is the girl who is doomed, cursed by the mummy's shroud. You mean I'm going to die? <laughs> In a few minutes from now, thousand years. Now he lives and breathes to avenge an ancient curse, to strangle the living, praise the dead, and prey upon human flesh. From the depths of doom comes the most fearful monster of the ages to strike with paralyzing terror the despoilers of ancient tombs. Here is new horror by the master of menace, Lon Chaney as the mummy, with Dick Foran, John Hubbard, Ellis Knox, George Zuko, Wallace Ford, Turon Bay, in The Mummy's Tomb. that's been alive for over 3,000 years is in this town. And it's brought death with it. We've got to run it down. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the story. We mentioned earlier that it takes place 30 years after the events of the first film, even though there's no advancement in technology or transportation uh, whatsoever. They're still riding (laughs) on horse and buggy at times. Although... And I didn't notice this. I wish I had. The Internet Movie Database says that Glenn Strange was in the film as a man riding the buckboard at one point. Uh, oh. Uncredited. You know, he's just an extra type person. I'd like to go back and see if I can pick him out. That is cool. I didn't know that. If that's true, that would that'd be a really cool piece of trivia to know. That I like mm-hmm. that. Anything Glenn Strange gets a chance to do is is awesome by me. Mm-hmm. So he's he's mm-hmm. one of those guys that... I just love any time I get to see him, even if it's in you know one of the public domain films. That that's awesome. Yeah, well, he's brought his own style to what he does, and he was really good. Yeah. But so yeah, the movie starts thirty years after the events of the first film, and we've got Stephen Banning recounting his stories of what happened to his son, daughter. I'm, I'm not. Sh- it's his son, it's right? His, it's his son, and then the, there's an older lady, and she is the mother of. Isabel, I believe. And then Isabel is dating his son. And they're both listening to his stories of the past. It's a pretty cut and dry flashback. I, I did notice they didn't have my favorite scene from the last film, which was the uh, bar scene. <laughs> How they all met? Yeah, love, that was great. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love the bar scene mm-hmm. uh, with the uh, the magician. He was he was an excellent character. I, have, I, I would have liked to see more of him, too. 
<laughs> Silvani. Yeah, Silvani. There yeah. you go. Yeah, no, he was great. I missed him. I missed having Cecil yeah. Calloway or Calloway there uh, as Silvani because oh, he's just a great character. But they really brush over him. You know, we met up with this Brooklyn magician. Moving on. It's like, oh yeah. man, you could have uh, gone back to that. And he had a beautiful daughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's they brush over those characters that were. I, I thought they were pretty well developed. I thought so too. What I do appreciate is that they do give Dr. Petrie some credit. They do mention him because I feel like of all the characters from the first film, if they could have dropped somebody from the stock footage flashback, they could have dropped Dr. Petrie. Yeah, he uh, he didn't have nearly as much to do in that. But they at least mentioned him, which I thought was kind of nice. Uh, kind of a nitpicky mm-hmm. attaboy, but I liked it. <laughs> I liked it too. Yeah. They, they cut out some pretty good scenes, although I did like that they kept the uh, – scene between Banning and Marta, you know, at the at the tent. And they kept in a, a few good scenes. Obviously the scene of Karis coming back to life being played by Tom Tyler, which is just chilling. And uh which had just as much effect in the flashback as it did for me the first time. Oh, it's a fantastic scene. I mean it's like a greatest hits sequence from the first film, Mining Salvani. Now <laughs> that said, as much as I like the Dr. Petrie scene and the mummy coming back, and I understand why they had to use this scene. Yeah. How did Banning know what happened there? He wasn't there. That's true. And it's not that like is- he and Zuko sat down and debriefed, you know, and this is how I killed Dr. Petrie. Make sure you remember. Yeah. No. So- There's a lot of stuff in this film mm-hmm. that defies logic. But- and uh, you just kind of have to say, okay, well, let's just watch the movie. because <laughs> I, there, there, there was a couple times when I was watching the film last night that I, I was letting my – my sense of wonder kind of go away and be like, well, hold on a second. Like, how did, how did this happen? And if, and if this happened, then why, why is this happening? You know, it's just, you you know, you can't dwell on it. Otherwise you're just not going to enjoy it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's important to remember that these are fantastic films. These are films of fantasy. So you have to hold on to that. You can't overthink some of it. And then you also think about the audience this was aimed at. I mean, this was a B picture. This was not, Unlike in the 30s, when a lot of these movies were prestige pictures and yes. were made as big event shows, these weren't. These were released for, you know, Saturday afternoon matinees mm-hmm. and, and things like that. And that's fine. You know, I can usually suspend my belief. This one was a little, uh, was a little harder, but I, I managed to, uh, I managed to do it and enjoy it. I think, you know, one of the, probably the biggest thing that was kind of hard to accept was the fact that Karis and, uh, Andoheb were walking around doing fine. <laughs> um, you know, Karis probably should have been burned up and, uh, Andoheb should be dead. <laughs> and, uh, that's not the case. So, right. So we, after the flashback retelling of what happened in the last film, we do spend a little bit of time. The one scene was Zuko mm-hmm. and Andoheb passing on his role as high priest. To Mohammed Bey, played by Turhan Bey. Which I, I thought was interesting. I wonder if he has any relation to Ardath Bey. Who knows? <laughs> um, huh. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I now, saw now some fan fiction is starting to kind of <laughs> yeah. come together in my head here. Some distant relative of Imhotep? Who knows? <laughs> I thought about that. So it was kind of interesting. I like it. Yeah. Somebody should do something with that. (laughs) You know, somebody like Stephen D. Sullivan or something. Oh, there you go. I don't think I could even begin to write something as cool (laughs) as that. But it turns out that Andoheb is kind of, you know, at first we think he's just kind of passing the torch along, but then it turns out he's, he's dying. And so he is explaining to Muhammad Bey that you can keep Karis alive with brewing three tana leaves but you can revive him to full you know full power with nine tana leaves and uh, we see Karis is is still there he hasn't been burned up he appears to be fine he looks a little different but he's uh he's intact after he explains you know everything and i guess he's already told mehemet bay about the past you know everything about the banning expedition and blah 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 and he says okay well you got to kill these people because they <laughs> because they ruined the sacred tomb of ananka and they deserve to die now it's been 30 years if i was george zuko i probably would have just you know done it after a couple of years but he didn't he waited 30 years and uh and and Oheb dies after he explains his mission to uh to bay 
and Bay takes the mummy and they get on a, uh, I believe it's a boat, right? To go to the United States. Yep. And it's kind of a cool little sequence. It appears that he's got some kind of a, of a, somebody helping him on the boat to keep everything a secret and, and not say a word about Karis. So he, he keeps him alive with the three Tana leaves and they make it to the United States where he takes a job as a caretaker at a cemetery. But in reality, it's just to hide out so that he can, uh, have a place to uh, keep cars alive. What a great setup though. I love that. Yeah, it was cool. And I have to say, I enjoyed seeing Karis, you know, stalking through the graveyard and then mm. leaving. I, I, I thought that was a really, really cool atmospheric scene. Oh, indeed. It was fantastic. I mean, if you're going to have a mummy wandering around at night, you might as well throw him in a cemetery. I loved it. I love the whole setup. And they're going to leave him alone in the cemetery. Who's going to bother the caretaker of a cemetery? Just let the guy be, especially yeah. this weirdo young kid who wants to hang out there. It really is a perfect mm-hmm. alibi. It really is because he implies that whatever <sighs> is in the tomb is his long lost love. I guess who he says was taken from him. And so that's a perfect setup. You know, he, he doesn't want to be in the world. He, he doesn't have any cares now that he's lost, whether it was his wife or his girlfriend or, or whoever, a partner, or, or whatever. He, he doesn't want to be involved in the world, so he just wants to live with the dead. And it's it's a perfect alibi, because now he's not going to be bothered, he's going to work nights, he's going to, you know, it's not going to be something that, that becomes instantly sort of suspicious. And it's also probably where we got the name of the film from, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's important. It is important, and, and you know, <laughs> whatever it takes. <laughs> so, Bay orders you know he brings Karis back to life he gives him the nine tana leaves we see the resurgence of this full moon thing and it's just still kind of weird when i think of the mummy mythos the full moon the howling wolves it's not part of it for me it, it isn't and I, I don't believe they ever I, I could be wrong but i don't remember them ever coming out in this film and saying the full moon is required but every time Karis goes out it's a full moon they very explicitly show that a few times. And so that's kind of strange to me. And now I know they said it in the last film, but they didn't really, I don't, I don't remember them overtly saying it in this film. And it just doesn't work for me. I, I just, it doesn't really fit into that for me. I think, I just think it's got to be the Tana leaves. I don't really think it needs to involve the full moon, but it, they show it multiple times. I agree. I, for me, for a mummy, one of the things that I find terrifying about the mummy and one of the reasons why I like the mummies and monsters so much is that it's not bound to just operating at night. Absolutely. You not. can have a mummy walking around during the day as evidenced by some of the things you see in the hammer films later. Yeah. And I like that a lot. It's going to get you whether you're asleep or not. Whereas the vampire, the werewolf, you know, they're night creatures. Absolutely. So, and, you know, something like a Frankenstein monster is going to be more noticed during the day. And- yeah. And, you know, a mummy is just, it's that stalking, emotionless, terrifying thing. And it's, and it's, it's scary. And that's something that I like about it. And, and yeah, like I said, in fact, I think a mummy would probably do more damage on a night where there isn't a full moon because yeah, you, you wouldn't be able to see it as easily. Well, and you wouldn't expect it since apparently they only turn up during the full moon. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say, I'm really hoping they abandon that over the next, over the course of the next few films. I I can't, like I said, it's been a long time. I can't remember if they do or not, but we'll see. So the mummy goes and finds Stephen Banning from the previous film and uh, kills him as he is uh, getting ready for bed. It's pretty abrupt. There's not a lot of twists and turns here. Find the Bannings, kill them. That's a big complaint I have about this film. Yeah. Uh, I believe when I was done watching it last night, the first thing I thought was, well, okay, well, they made a great film with the mummy's hand with all these great characters, and then they made the mummy's tomb to kill them all off. <laughs> and yeah. I mean, literally almost everybody from the first film except Karis dies. <laughs> if they didn't die in the last film or between periods, they died in this film. And uh, that was a little depressing for me. Mm-hmm. I would have preferred a, another exciting adventure with these characters, and instead they just they just killed them. You know that's fine, but uh, it was a little, a little depressing. And, it, and like you said, there wasn't much of a twist or turn or anything. He just 
Bay tells cars to kill him and he kills him one by one. It, it's scary. It's, it's terrifying, but it also kind of leaves the main plot of the story a little cold for me. Uh, there's not really a main character like, or a main hero or it, it just kind of, I, I don't know if you realized this when I, when you were watching it, but I did. There's just a lot of people. A lot of, you know, there's a scene where there's like random newspaper men and then there's the sun and then there's, uh, uh, the police detectives and it's, there seems to be a lack of direction in terms of, okay, well, who are we, who are we following through this story? You know, obviously Turhan Bay is the bad guy and Karis is sort of his instrument of destruction, but there isn't really a main character. If you understand what I'm saying, I agree with you totally. There is no real solid viewpoint character here. Whose story is this supposed to be? Is it supposed to be Stephen Banning's story? We know it's not Babe's story because he doesn't show up until the end. Is yeah. it the younger Banning story? Well, maybe, but we don't spend enough time with him to really get to know him outside of, well, he's a Banning. So whose tale yeah. are we watching here? I, I guess we're watching Karis's, but. There, there was a point, you know, about 30 minutes into the film where I'm not really sure who I'm rooting for. I just, you know, it's like, right. what, what is. Where Where is it going? And I, like I said before, I didn't feel that way at all with the last film because you have your clear characters. This is who this is Banning. His sidekick is Hanson. This is, uh, you know, the girl that they meet. This is the great Salvini. This is, this is what they're going to do. And that just isn't the case in this film. It's a little bit confusing. And I, I remember thinking when I was watching this last night, man, I'm having a hard time connecting with with any of these characters because I'm having a hard time just following who who is in charge where this is going you know because by this time you know Karis is killing all these people you don't really care as much as you did in the last film and there's a sheriff and and a coroner and they're trying to figure out who's doing all these murders and these newspaper men all come to uh mapleton and which is the town that this is happening in and babe finds out about uh, the death of Banning. And so he come, I think, I don't know if he was in New York or, or something, but he comes down and, uh, he meets with John, which is Banning's son. And he kind of gives him the, the update on everything that's happened. The only lead that they really have is that everyone who is killed by this murderer is left with some dusty gray material on, on their necks. And of course they have, they have no clue what it is. Uh, but as soon as Babe hears it, he knows exactly what it is. And, uh, tr- he's trying to tell everybody, oh, you know, it's, it's Karis. Karis is back. And John doesn't believe him. And so he goes and tells his tale to some newspapermen at the bar. There seems to be like the main newspaperman who kind of believes him, but he's not really sure. He just thinks he might have a hot lead or something. And it isn't long after this that Babe has killed himself by Karis. So one by one, Mehmet Bey is sending cars to just do away with everybody that, that is involved or ever was involved. Or, And I think actually Bey is actually in the bar, I believe, when Hansen is talking to the newspaperman. So he hears what's going on and he, he knows that Babe knows. So it's just, it's kind of a hodgepodge for me. It is. And then this movie does what a lot of movies don't do eventually all the authorities believe in monsters enough <laughs> to rally around and go after them even though this movie's 30 you know, 1970 right yeah that- <laughs> alternate 1970 there we go there we go the alternate 1970 <laughs> uh, eventually everybody does believe in the mummy enough to chase them down with torches you know the 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 mob from yeah from, from frankenstein they show right. up mm-hmm. <laughs> I was watching that and thought, oh, great. That's that's Frankenstein. <laughs> hey, we heard we had a monster over here. Let's get him. <laughs> well, we love our mobs over here, so let's go help you guys yeah. with Bob. Yeah, yeah. Um, the scenes where Karis does attack, I like the scenes because they, they, they do some shadow work, which I always appreciate. Cheney's creepy as the, as the monster. He is. He doesn't really seem like he's enjoying it very much, you know, obviously. But... Towards this point in the film, and I know we're running through this kind of quickly, but honestly, that's just really all the film is. But towards the end of the film, we find out that Mehmet Bey apparently is interested in Isabel, who is played by Elise Knox. 
and she is the uh, the girlfriend of John Banning. And Banning receives a uh, a telegram that he's being drafted to war. Which war this is, I don't know. <laughs> um, but he is being drafted. Considering what year this was made, it's obviously implied to be World War II, but that, like we said before, that can't be possible. But they decide to get married. Well, Bay finds out about this and, you know, suddenly realizes, oh, I have to marry her. She's mine. I want her to be mine. And he tells Karis. And Karis does not like it. It's never made clear why. I wasn't sure if Karis was angry because he missed Ananka or because he was in love with Isabel. I don't know if there's some kind of jealousy there or something. But it's a cool scene because you get to see Lon Chaney Jr. finally act a little bit through the makeup. Mm-hmm. And I, I like the way he reacts. You know, it's he's clearly not happy. I kind of wish they had explored this a little bit more, but it's it's never really explained why Karis gets angry. It is unfortunate, but you're right. It does give Chaney an opportunity to do more than just kind of wander around in this awesome makeup. I mean, I it's a good suit. It's a good monster suit. It's yeah. Jack Pierce. You know, yeah, so of course great. it's quality and it looks good and it's a little different than the first film, but you know, he was set on fire 30 years ago. So what do you want? Um, <laughs> you know, I'd be interested to find out if the car is not being happy with what Bay is doing was originally in the script. I'd be interested to see, you know, how that worked out. Maybe if, if that was something Cheney might have insisted upon to, you know, bring a little life to the character, I'd be interested to find out about that and see, you know, if, if that's really what originally was in the script or if maybe it was changed up a little bit. I, I would, I wonder about that. I mean, I still enjoyed the movie, but I, I haven't seen a universal horror film that I, I don't enjoy. Right. But there are definitely some that are better than, than the others. And, and this is one of the lower tier for me. Bay sends Karis out and he he's like, okay, we're, we're changing our plans. I'm going to marry her and I'm going to make her the high priestess of Karnak and you are going to serve the both of us. And at first Karis is not happy, but he obeys his command and he goes to get the girl, which I mean, Bay is the one who holds the Tana leaves. So he kind of has to do what he says. This scene was pretty good though. I liked this scene where he goes to the house and abducts her. I thought that was a pretty cool sequence. It, it actually worked a little bit for me. Mm-hmm. He takes her to the cemetery and puts her down on the table, a lot like how uh, how Karis took the girl from the last film and brought her to Zuko, uh, even though it was a little more uh, a little more believable, a little more exciting in that one. And then uh, Bay says, well, I'm going to make you my bride, and you are going to give me a son, to which she's like, oh, no, I'm not, I don't think so. And... <laughs> just like that too just like that <laughs> yeah it's like it's gonna happen you're not gonna have a daughter you're gonna have a son and i just thought okay um and then he goes into the the we talked about this last time you know he, he's gonna make her immortal and everything and i thought oh well you know i i think i'd like to be immortal but i don't think zuko was talking about having a child in the previous film although i'm sure that he had some pretty devious thoughts knowing his character. Yeah. <laughs> but as you said, the mob is they the mob is forming. The the police finally believe they I believe at one point a piece of the mummy's bandages was found in, you know, stuck in some in, in a bush or something. And and they I don't know if it was the coroner who did this or just a scientist, but they put it under a microscope and they found that it's actually mold. And it matches the same mold that has been found on the uh, the skin of everyone who's died on their necks. They're starting to believe that, yes, there is an Egyptian mummy running around in, in the middle of this Midwestern town. The mob goes to the cemetery and they confront Bay and Bay pulls out a gun, not really being conspicuous and says, you know, everyone, everyone that was ever attached to the desecration of Ananka's tomb will die. And he pulls out a gun to shoot Banning, but as soon as he pulls it out, the sheriff shoots Bay, which I thought, oh, that was quick. Yeah. <laughs> this feel like, once again, the Zuko dying in the last one was a little more exciting than how they killed Bay in this one, because he's right. just gone. It's over. Yeah. And that, I, I remember thinking, wow, that was quick. And so then they uh, they go chase Karis 
holding Isabel, who's he, I guess he, he, I think it's implied here that he wants her for himself. And so he takes Isabel and he, uh, he takes her and gets kind of locked up in the Banning estate and they decide to just burn the place down, which I hope they had insurance. Um, <laughs> that's, that's one thing. That's the one thing I was thinking of when I, when I was watching this, the one thing that brought up in my mind, I was like, man, I, I hope they had insurance on that house because they decided to burn that thing pretty quickly. Maybe just run inside and burn the mummy. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> they burn the estate. Banning manages to run into the house before the estate burns. He takes Isabel from Karis and they set fire to the house and the monster supposedly perishes in the fire. There are some really cool shots here where yes. it's clearly a dummy or a mannequin wearing the mummy mask that they hit him in the face with a flaming torch or a piece of flaming wood. Yes. I loved that. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. I, I like that. It's very quick, but it's mm-hmm. effective. Mm-hmm. And cut between the scenes, like you said, like you brought up earlier of uh, whether it's Cheney or not, it looks like Cheney. It's sort of like Karis has woken up a little bit because suddenly he's moving a little, a little more quickly. Mm-hmm. He realizes that he's in danger and he is not happy. In fact, I think at one point, I don't know if this was an accident and it wasn't supposed to happen, but at one point he even starts moving his broken arm. I noticed that too. Yeah. I don't know if that was done on purpose to kind of show his desperation or if it was an accident and he, his sling or something came loose. I I don't know, but I thought that was kind of interesting. I'm going to say that it was probably in desperation. Yeah. And I liked it and I thought it looked good because it's clear that by the way he's moving and the way he's kind of freaking out, he knows he's in danger and he knows there's no way out. So I, I liked that a lot. And that, that was, and yeah, combined with the scenes where they, they pushed the fire into his eyes. I liked that. I thought that was cool. That was very good. Very a well good done. high point. If, yeah. if anything, this, it's a good high point to cap off a movie that was a little disappointing for me. So, cause the final scene is pretty cool. Now, that being said, when I came on before and talked about Dead Men Walk, I was a little more impressed with the flame sequence at the end of that film mm-hmm. than I was with this movie. I kind of thought about that a little bit, and I thought, man, it's, it's shocking to me that that public domain flame sequence is a little more impressive than this one. But it's a good ending, and obviously, Karis isn't dead. Spoiler alert, but it's, <laughs> it's it, you know, if he didn't burn it... If some, I, I did wonder, you know, if he didn't die after burning at the end of the mummy's hand, he's not going to die after burning here. And, right. Uh, but then again, everybody who knew about that was dead, so they, I guess, they didn't know any better. Right. But uh, we get the, another newspaper headline, and then a couple of them. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's just going to happen. And um, Banning and Isabel get married, and I, I kind of had another lapse of logic here too, because it appears that they go on some kind of a honeymoon. But I thought he had to report in three days to be drafted. I don't know. But anyway, just ignore the logic. And <laughs> there you go. That's the mummy's tomb. We've said a few times that we have some problems with this movie. But yes, I, I hope listeners understand we still have a lot of fondness for this film. Yes. I do like the previous film a lot better. But, I mean, this one's still, I mean, it's a, it's a ride. It's a mummy ride. And it's hard to go wrong with a mummy. It's, it's a good movie. To turn on like I did last night, you know, it's a, it's it's a good late night. Let's not think about it too much. Good movie, you know, black and white film to watch at night, and you know, you kind of turn off your brain a little bit. In this case, maybe a little bit more than a little bit, but it's it's a <laughs> uh, this this would probably fare a little bit better for me if I had watched it back to back with the Mummy's Hand, mm, because okay. then I could then I could have got a little more of that. Uh, I don't know, maybe a little more complete feeling, I guess, because this is really sort of just like part two, even though it's not a very good part two compared to the first one. But that being said, it's it's a good film. It definitely is is worth watching if you enjoy a good mummy flick. And it's it's cool to see Lon Chaney as Karis for the first time. It is. It is. Even though he was not a big fan of the makeup, he wasn't a big fan of the role, he was still a professional, and he still put a little bit of himself into the character and made it his own. I mean, Cheney, if monster kids don't already know, this is the man who played the most monsters for universal, you know, the Wolfman, yes. Frankenstein's monster, Dracula, the mummy. 
and all the other ones too, you know, the Indestruct- Indestructible Man, Man-Made Monster. I mean, well, I guess Indestructible Man was a universal, but still, he did so it's, much. Yeah, it was a, yeah. yeah, he did a ton of horror films. Mm-hmm. And I always, it, I always, this always comes back to me, but he disliked the role of playing Cars so much. But I'll never forget that episode of Route 66 that features Karloff and Peter Lorre and Chaney. And he dresses up as Cars in that episode. And I, I remember when I watched that for the first time, and I thought, man, I'm a little shocked that he agreed to do that. Because at that point, he's an older man. And I believe that that episode came out in the yeah in the 60s, I, I'm sure, I believe. That's, that's 20 years after these films. And I remember thinking, man, I'm surprised that he agreed to that, considering how much he, he didn't like that character. So I, I think he realized that this character was an important character for him. And, you know, he may have not enjoyed it very much, but it gave him work and it continued his, his, uh, his reign of horror throughout the 1940s at Universal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I like these films. I do. I, I just, they're, even though a film like this is a little, you know, it's a little hard to swallow sometimes, there's still a whole bunch of cool scenes in it. And you can't go wrong with a mummy stalking around. No, you can't. I love my mummy films and I'm not sure. Well, I, I think I can identify where some of it comes from. Mummy films are kind of the precursor to the slasher film. And as somebody who was yes. finally embracing horror films in the late 80s and early 90s, I watched a lot of slasher movies. Now, I'm more a monster yes. kid these days with the classic retro stuff. And I think my love of the mummy film, I th- it might be tied into how I first experienced horror when I finally was able to watch it on my own. Yes. So there's a little bit of that there. I don't want to get too deep, especially since I've only had one cup of coffee this morning. But <laughs> I, I think that's part of it. I, I like the slasher formula when it's wrapped up in mummy bandages. And this film, yeah, and this film feels a lot like the later installment in a slasher franchise where exactly. you know, the first one is setting up all this stuff. And you've got characters that mean something. They're real characters. And then as these horror slasher franchises of the 80s continued, well, the characters become less and less important. It's more about the villain. It's more about the creative kills. And it feels like that's a little bit of what happened here. Yes. I, that's, you know, that's a great way to, uh, to compare those. And now that I think about it, I could compare something like this to a Friday the 13th part six or something, you know, mm-hmm. because the mummy burned to the last film. Oh, well, Jason died at the end of the last film. You know what I mean? But he's back. Right. And it's okay. You know, it's, it's fine. That's okay with me there. And I'm thankfully, you know, we talked about this before. I have the ability to, to most of the time suspend my, my disbelief and, and say, Oh, well, you know, he, he, of course he's back. He, he's unstoppable. You know what he's I mean? The mummy. He's, he's the mummy. Yeah. <laughs> He's Karis. He's not going to die. And that's what you have to do. And if you can do that, you can enjoy these films. It does have a lot to enjoy and a lot to hang on to. If nothing else, it's got some great music you'll get to revisit. And, of course, Jack Pierce's makeup design. You can't go wrong with Jack Pierce. Even when the studio was doing wrong by him, you can't go wrong with Jack Pierce. Jack Pierce is uh, the king of horror makeups mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. No Jack Pierce, no monsters. I, I feel like without Pierce, we really Absolutely. wouldn't have the- what we have today. Without him, it simply wouldn't be the same. The uh, I hope The Mummy's Ghost is a little more of an improvement. <laughs> yes, in two years, The Mummy's Ghost would hit the screen and we'd get one of my favorite actors playing the Egyptian uh, in the form of John Carradine. Oh, oh yes, yeah. the John Carradine film. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anything with John Carradine, he's, he's another one just like Zuko for me that if he's in it, I'm interested. It's yeah. just the way it is. I, he's just... And he's one of those actors that, man, he had a lot of success outside of the horror genre. Yes, he a did. A lot of success. And it's something that I really think that he did more to just get a paycheck, but it doesn't matter because he still brings it every single time. He was always working. He was always working. And whether it was something like The Grapes of Wrath or House of Dracula, he was always working and always doing something. And Good. he did those horror films at the end with like the howling and things like that. We could talk more about him next time. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. That, that'll, that'll be our tease. <laughs> yes. There, come, come back for the mummy's ghost, which in, will probably happen. Years. Yeah. <laughs> well, two, no, we won't wait two years to do it. <laughs> I mean, we certainly won't wait 30 years. 
that's just not going to happen. We're going to be a little faster than Andohev was. Yeah. (laughs) But if you can't wait for Nicholas Hatcher to come back to Monster Kid Radio, of course, he's got two podcasts of his own you can go listen to. Yeah, I think you can say that I've played the promo for Vampire Over Hollywood in this episode, but VampireOverHollywood.com, the Bela Lugosi podcast, comes out, what, every other week or so? Yes. Both of my podcasts come out alternating weeks. Vampire Over Hollywood, we're putting out a new episode tomorrow, which will be August 9th. And uh, that'll be over uh, Zombies on Broadway. And then Psychotronic Celluloid, I believe we're covering Dimagen, the first Dimagen film. Oh, and nice. Then, uh, and then we're going to do Completely Left Field and do The Three Stooges Go Around the World in a Daze. So that's going to be fun. <laughs> Big, big, big Stooge fan here. So we gotta, we gotta get on some Stooge action. Why do I want to see the Stooges in a kaiju film all of a sudden? Oh my goodness, that would be a dream come true. That would, oh wow! That would, I've never considered that, but oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. That would be so. That'd be something. <laughs> yeah. So we uh, we change we change it up over on a. Uh, on psychotronic celluloid that'll be coming out uh that'll be coming out next week so yeah you can go to uh, vampireoverhollywood.com and uh psychotroniccelluloid.com and check more out we have facebook pages you can look us up on facebook and and give us a like well, <laughs> well we will have you back on the show in the near future to get some more mummy action on thanks for taking the time to do this and for being patient with me listeners we actually started a little late because i needed my coffee man so <laughs> thanks for being accommodating Oh man, no problem. It's all, like I said before, it's always a pleasure to come on Monster Kid Radio and I enjoy your shows so much. So thank you. Hey, thank you. You can say that. You can keep going now. That's fine. Say <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Again, you can check out Nicholas Hatcher over at vampireoverhollywood.com for his podcast devoted to all things Bela Lugosi. And what a fun show it is. I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite podcasts to launch in 2015. Also, you can catch him over at psychotroniccelluloid.com where he and his co-host Mark talk about two films, a lot of times not really related. Well, okay, almost every time they're not really related. And in the most recent episode, they talked about Daimajin and the three stooges go around the world in a daze. I, I have my brain hurts just trying to put those two together. Anyway, go check those out. Tell them that you heard about Nicholas at Monster Kid Radio. And Nicholas, again, big thanks for being part of the show. We'll have you back on the show in the future to talk about the next film in the mummy cycle, The Mummy's Ghost. The lonely, helpless earth. The 21st century. The world of the future. And lurking beyond the cold, strange immensity of conquered space. Growing and spreading beyond the warped imagination of the greatest human intellect. Exploding in unspeakable horror. The green slime. The civilized world at war with alien form, whose slimy touch means instant, horrible death. Invaders from beyond the stars, the green slime. Robert Horton. Luciana Paluzzi. Richard Jacob. You make too many mistakes. You're not right for command. This is my command, and I'll manage it. Two men struggle for survival in the infected remains of a diseased universe. One woman searches for a last chance to save the human race from the desperate hunger of the green slime. Face against faceless beings. A cosmic nightmare that sends you into the incredible, berserk world of.
White Zombie, a new novelization of the classic horror movie from award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive Through Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. message is, Mars needs women. These were the words that startled the world. This was the reason for an invasion that shocked the Earth. Martians, beings from outer space, with one prime objective, women, Earth women, to help repopulate their dying planet, to bring new blood to an ancient civilization. Beauty and the beasts. Only the beasts were men. Martian men. Every woman checked and double-checked. Only the most perfect. The most beautiful. Is Earth to be ravished because Mars needs women? to play that trailer from Mars Needs Women because that was a monster movie that Yvonne Craig was in who just passed away. People probably know her best as the original Batgirl from the Batman TV series. So rest in peace, Yvonne. That does bring us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank Nicholas Hatcher for being part of the show and thank you guys and gals for checking us out, downloading us, and making us part of your ear diet. That's just weird. Anyway, thank you for listening. Next week on Monster Kid Radio, Chris McMillan is coming back to the show, and Jeff Pullier is joining us. Now, Jeff has been on the show during various Monster Kid Radio crashes at the Joy Cinema. He also contributed to our Christopher Lee tribute. Well, he's going to be on the show proper with Chris, and we're going to talk about the movie The Green Slime, which is the reason why I played that trailer earlier. That was a lot of fun. It was a great conversation. I can't wait to share that with everybody here. So come back for that. In the meantime, head over to monsterkidradio.net to check out everything we've got going on here with Monster Kid Radio. You can find links to everything that we've talked about here on this episode or the previous 227. We have links to things like our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show that way. You can also sign up for the Monster Rally Checkpoint e-newsletter. You can get in on that before the end of the month, and you'll get yourself on the mailing list, keeping you up to date with everything we've got going on here at Monster Kid Radio headquarters. You get some monster movie trivia questions, original content, something that I enjoy putting together, and I hope you enjoy reading it. There's also a link to every single song that's appeared here on the show, including Dinosaur Ghost. We're going to get to them here in a second. And our contact information is on our website. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our phone number, our voicemail line, is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. I mentioned Dinosaur Ghost. I wanted to give them a shout-out and give you guys and gals a heads-up. They're going to be playing in Hollywood with the bands The Electric West and Facts on File at Harvard and Stone. They're at 5221 Harvard Boulevard. Doors open at 9. It's a free show for 21 and older only. Go check them out. Listen to them live and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you their way. I heard about that on the Dinosaur Ghost Facebook page, and yeah, we're on Facebook too. We have a Facebook poll going that was inspired by a comment made by Ron Adams, the man behind Monster Bash in a previous episode. So if you're a Facebook user, join the group, get involved there. You might also see where Dwight Kemper, previous guest here and friend of Monster Kid Radio, posted that the audio version of his novel, The Vampire's Tomb Mystery, is now on sale through Circle of Spears Productions over at circleofspears.com. £19.99. I don't know what that translates for dollars, but you can pre-order it now. It comes out at the end of this month. So here in a few days, it'll be available in nine hours, seven minutes, an awesome mystery story involving Ed Wood, Forrest J. Ackerman, Tor Johnson, Mae West, Criswell. It's just a fun, fun read. Highly recommended. 
All right, that brings us to the end of the show. Again, thank you for listening. Remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song... The Ballad of the Sea Bison. That belongs to the band Dinosaur Ghost. You can find it on their album, Dinosaur Ghost, which you can find on their Bandcamp page, dinosaurghost.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening. Talk to everybody next week when we get into some green slime. (laughs) 